Hi friends, this is episode 38 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey everybody, I am just delighted that you're going on this journey with me to try to discover God's characters through the book of Judges. And this is a tough one. And especially today, you're going to see how the book of Judges really is one of the most graphic books in the Bible. And so prepare yourself for an incredible adventure today. It's a spy thriller this week. Uh, We're talking about Ehud, the ultra super spy who does something that many of us would never even attempt. And there's, that's probably a good thing. But I want to remind you, before you get too far into this, make sure you visit our website, thebiblelab.com, thebiblelab.com. We want you to get the study guide and follow along because there's a lot of good stuff in there that we want to make sure that you don't miss. And it's really helpful to you. So thank you so much for joining us. And I just pray that as we continue to go through this book, that you truly will see God in a way that you never have before. Welcome to the Bible Lab. You guys ready? Yes, here we go. Number one, I really like spy books or movies. I really like, oh, that was quick. Wow, the majority of this crowd, it looks like about 85% of this crowd says yes, and a bunch of other people quickly raised up a no. (laughs) You'd rather have something else. Number two, most likely there's at least one spy in this room. Oh, look at this. Look at this. I'm seeing like 50% 50 yes. About 30% no, and 20% maybe. Is that because you don't want to expose yourself, or you think the person next to you might be a spy? Or do you think I'm a spy? Awesome. Number three, when we refuse God's blessings, he gives them to our enemies. When we refuse God's blessings, he gives them to our enemies. Oh, here it's a majority of no. I'm seeing about, looks like about 85 to 90% no, about 10% yes, and the rest maybe. That's not good math, but we'll move on. <laughs> Some of you might change that answer. I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying you're not right. Um, after, <laughs> after we read this, you might have to change change that, but it's okay. It was up so quick, nobody saw your answer, except for me. Number four, when given a choice, God prefers to work with handicapped people. When given a choice, God prefers to work with handicapped people. This is a tough one. Everyone's got to vote. You got to vote. Okay, here we go. We are totally split on this one. It looks like almost a 33-33-33 34 or whatever percent uh, split. We're really split on this. Does God prefer to work with handicapped people? We're going to talk about that today. Number four, I'm sorry, five. Number five, God empowers our enemies to hurt us when we turn our backs on him. God empowers our enemies to hurt us 
when we turn our backs on him? I'm, I'm seeing a sea of no. It looks like about 95% no, about 2% yes, and 3% maybe. Do you want me to ask this one again? Okay, number five, God empowers our enemies to hurt us when we turn our backs on him. You got the same answer. Do you want me to, you want me to ask you it again? No, never mind, we'll move on. Some of you are gonna have to rethink that because scripture says otherwise. Scripture says otherwise. And we've got to wrestle with this because in our hearts, there are two things we just went through that we said, no, 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 that's, that's, not, that's not God's character. And yet the scripture that we're going to read couches God in that light and says that God does do that. He says when we refuse God's blessing, he does give them to our enemies. And secondly, when God, uh, God empowers our enemies to hurt us, when we turn our backs on him, we're going to see that. And we got to wrestle with that. Because that doesn't seem very godlike, does it? Not the God that we've discovered. It may seem like the God that you grew up with, but as we've gone through researching and developing the character of God, we've, we've noticed something about God, that God equals something. God is love. And any section of scripture that tells you otherwise, you're just misunderstanding it. That's what we've discovered in two years, right? So we've got to take a look at this because all of us in our hearts, we're raising a different response than what the literal reading of scripture would lead you to believe. So we're going to have to dig into that. It's going to be a really interesting story. Now, I mentioned at the very beginning, I, I tried to find out who in this group really likes spy books or movies. And the majority of you do. The rest of you, you can go ahead and take a nap today. It's okay. Um, <laughs> There was about eight of you. It's okay. Um, but this is going to be a thriller. To, to, it's truly going to be a spy thriller today as we go through this story. Uh, anyone who tells you th uh, the Bible is boring has never read the book of Judges because it's, uh, it's mostly rated PG-13, and the chapters that are not PG-13 are rated R. And so uh, for, for violence, mostly. So... As we're looking at this, I, I, want you to, uh, I want you to get your mind into the mindset of where we're going to be. As we step into chapter 3, verse 12 through 30, I want us to get into the mindset so we don't misunderstand the cultural context where we are. And so I, I want us to start out by answering this question. So get your cards ready if you have a question or comment. But I want to ask this question. When you were a younger Christian, what were you taught about how God responds when you don't do what he wants. In other words, does he punish you, turn his back on you, send trouble your way, or even let Satan bring bad things into your life or something else? What were you taught growing up when you don't do what God wants you to do? How does God respond? All right, so we've got, I'm going to start with Sharon right here. Well, I'm not sure that I was ever taught specifically what God does. But I do know that if we have parents who don't know about God's love, um, that colors our ability to understand him. My poor dad, when I would do something wrong, I would disappear from his world. He would walk right past me and not look at me. He would not speak to me for several days. So that became, in my mind, what God does. Hmm. 
So in, in your mind, what you did was when you did things bad, you assumed that God also was turning a blind eye to you. You didn't exist until you come and do things the way God wants you to do it. You don't exist. He turns a blind eye. Anybody else? Yes, right here. I'm not thinking about something that I did right or wrong. What I'm thinking about is when God asked me to do something and I didn't, that he just chose somebody else. Oh, yeah. We, we do that a lot in our history, too. Well, these others didn't do what God wanted, and so he raised up this third one, and they were the weakest one of the three, but God was so frustrated with these others that he finally chose this one. You got to stop. How much does God know? Everything, except for those two guys. <laughs> does God know what you will choose? Yes, he knows everything. He knows you. He knows things you don't know. He knows the numbers of hair on your head. Some of you older men, you don't have to really struggle with that too much, but he still knows. And he knows if one's going to sprout up surprisingly. You don't know that. God knows everything. So when we say, as we look at biblical history or church history and say, God tries and that person ignores him. And so he moves on to the next one he tries and that guy ignores him. So he moves on to the third. When we say that, we have to be really, really careful about what we're saying about God because we're saying God is not really good at making decisions. Careful. You're saying that God is not a good decision maker. And when we do that, we make God look silly. And God's not silly. So we have to be really careful. God is very specific about who he chooses and what time he chooses them. And he always chooses the right person at the right time. Where we get confused is that God calls all of us for something. Regardless of your occupation, you, you have a life's vocation. And that vocation is something specifically for you to do. And you can choose to invest in it or not, do a little bit of it, do none of it, or do all of it. You can choose how much you do of your life's vocation, but God doesn't change your life's vocation. You're meant to do something. And whether you do it or not, is your own choice. But God, in important decisions, he knows who will say yes. And he goes directly to them and he says, I need you to do something. And we see this 12 times in the book of Judges. And as we look at this, we have to be really, really careful about the theology we teach by the practice that we have in applying that to today. I think back here and then here. Follow what the Proverbs say. Uh, don't spare the rod. Spoil the child. Yes. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Did you have the same parents I had? <laughs> I'm looking around because my mom's here. No, my mom was fair. My mom was very fair. But she also quoted that quite a bit. We didn't spare many rods around our house. And <laughs> we, we lost a few wooden spoons, too. <laughs> I have to tell you, one, one time, one time. And I know, as a parent, I know, your kids, they, they, get, they get you. They, they totally irritate you. Why? Because you because they are you. And, <laughs> and I, I, I guess I've always been this sassy um, because I, I sassed. And my, she said something and I sassed. And my mom was sweeping. She had a brand new uh, broom and it, it had this aluminum handle. 
And she was so angry. Now, I deserved it. And she swung that thing. And that thing tacoed around my little behind. And I didn't even feel it. It's this cheap aluminum. It just bent, like tacoed right around me. And, and it took me a second to realize, that looks horrible, until I realized, you better fall down and fake cry right now. <laughs> My mom felt horrible, and I didn't feel a thing. <laughs> so. So. If you're not going to spare the rod, don't use aluminum, okay? It's, your kids will laugh at you. Okay, over here. Uh, what was I have no idea what you're going to say. I have no idea what I just said. Yeah. Um, I, can, I can come back if you want. Want me to come back? You're good. You got it. It takes me a little while, but... Uh, Jonah, look what he did to him to make sure he did what he was supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. God does everything he can to keep you on track. He does everything he can to keep you on track. And I, I, I think we forget the story of Jonah. I think we forget the story of Adam and Eve. When we do wrong, God does not turn his back on us. He runs toward us. It's what he does. It's in his character. He does not abandon you. He goes and he's always trying to rescue you. Our challenge is, while we're still running away from God, uh, as long as we have our back turned to him, we don't see God in his relentless pursuit of us. Because we're not looking in the rearview mirror for him, but he's there. And that's what we've seen consistently week in and week out here. Right up here, Sharon. Well, the message I got growing up was that when I, dis- when I disappointed God, my guardian angel was very sad. Yeah, extremely disappointed, yes. And sometimes your guardian angel might leave you, is what I've heard people say. Yes. Uh, right back over here. I remember a struggle in a certain demographic of the church, and they could not understand. They felt the general conference wasn't blessing this certain area. And it was put back to, at a certain point, we realized that the blessing that came to Sister White was offered to these other people, and they didn't take it. And so then God gave it to her, and therefore the people connected to these others are suffering because they didn't accept the, the blessing, so it was generational. Yeah. And we would ask, well, whatever happened? Well, we don't know. It doesn't matter. But that was the curse that fell on a certain one for not taking the blessing of the message that came to Sister White. Yeah, I... I... I've had that in several classes. I've had that history taught, and I've always had a problem with it because of what it says about God, that God didn't choose Ellen White first. She's a third-class citizen, and finally, when the men wouldn't listen, he finally chose a woman. I just can't buy that. He wanted it done well, and he wanted someone who was passionate and a great communicator, so he chose that woman. He chose her. The interesting thing that people don't understand is that God is extremely generous. And he doesn't, in in the last days, he he doesn't want just this to be secret information for a few. And so he does inspire others. And although the others did not, in our history, uh, proclaim loudly the message, I just can't see God saying, oops, I made a mistake. Oops, I did it again. Uh, And then Ellen White. 
well, I, I prefer working with men, but two strikes and now I'm going to try a woman. It, that just is not in the character of God. And we're going to see that in the weeks coming up because we have a female judge named Deborah who was not God's third choice and not even a second choice. It's his first choice. When God looks down and sees the qualified individual, he inspires that person with his spirit, with his message, and that person proclaims the salvation of the Lord. And so I've always had a problem with that. And I know I'll get emails and texts and there'll be some little blurb on YouTube. I love it. Um, uh, People saying I'm a heretic, but I just can't see that in the Bible that God looks at women as second-class citizens and as his final choice. I cannot see in, in Scripture that God makes mistakes when he calls people. Because when God works with people, even though the people really have their own challenges, like Jonah, and run their own way, God says, no, 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 no. You know better than that. Let's get you back on the path. And we're actually going to see that in the book of Judges as well. In fact, the entire book of Judges is God coming down and saying, look, okay, you guys are willing to listen now because you're crying out for help again. And so now that you're in the right frame of mind, now I can rescue you. Let me get you back on track. And he gets them back on track last week, 40 years. This week, he's going to get them back on track 80 years, two generations. And that's God's MO is getting us back on track. Back here. I grew up in a home where reasoning was given a prime time. So when I did something wrong, my father especially would uh, call me and talk to me. We would sit down and talk. And that reminded me of uh, Isaiah 1.8. God says, come down, come here, let's talk, let's reason together. Your sins, your faults, your mistakes are red, they will be white as as snow. But one time, my father changed his methodology. Instead of an aluminum rod, he used a leather belt. And I remember that day. But the best thing I remember is that my brother shared the punishment. Yeah. (laughs) It made it a little easier. Yes, it did. (laughs) Exactly. Shared misery. Exactly. My sister used to get very upset because um, typically the reason why I was in trouble might have had something to do with what I did to my sister. Um, and my sister would get so upset because while I'm getting my spanking, which I, I deserved, I would be explaining in perhaps humorous detail uh, what I had done, and I would get whoever was spanking me, my mom or my dad, I would get them laughing. And they would, they would stop spanking me because they were laughing because it was funny. It was, I mean, come on, it was funny. And... Um, my sister would get so mad because she'd be like, you don't laugh when you're spanking me. And I said, because you're not funny. <laughs> Today we're going to step into this spy story and you need to hang on to what, what we just talked about, the viewpoint of God. How does, how does God perceive you when you've gone off track and when you come back on track? And to do so, I want you to open up your Bible. Some of you have on your smart devices here. Um, I want you to open up your Bible to Judges chapter 3. The reason why it's on uh, either in your Bible or on a screen is because it's too long for our study guide. We wouldn't have room for any questions. So we're going to not read it from the study guide, but we're going to read it from your Bibles or your screens. Judges chapter 3, verse 12 through 30. And I'm going to read it through quickly for us, the entire thing. And then we're going to walk through it. 
Verse 12, and again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. So Yahweh strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. He gathered to himself, this is speaking of Eglon, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the Israelites served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. And the Israelites cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, son of Gerah, a Benjaminite, and a left-handed man. And the Israelites sent a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, through him. Ehud made for himself a short two-edged sword, a cubit in length, and he fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. Then he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Can I hear an amen? When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he turned back from the sculptured stones that were near Gilgal, and he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, silence. So all those standing in his presence went out. And Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool upper room. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he got up from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand for the sword on his right thigh, and he thrust it into his stomach. And the handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade because he did not draw back the sword from his stomach, and it went protruding out the back. You guys didn't eat before this program, did you? Thank you, refreshment team. Verse 23, and Ehud went out the vestibule, and he closed the doors of the upper room and locked them behind him. After he left, his servants returned. When they saw that the doors in the upper room were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the cool inner room. And they waited so long, they became embarrassed because he did not open the doors of the upper room. So they took the key and opened the doors. And there, their Lord was lying on the ground, dead. And Ehud escaped while they delayed. He passed by the sculptured stones and escaped to Sarah. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down from the hill country with him, leading them. And he said to them, follow after me. Yahweh has given Moab, your enemies, into your hand. So they went down after him, and they captured the fords of the Jordan toward Moab, and they did not allow anyone to cross over. And they struck Moab at that time, about 10,000 men, all strong and able men. No one escaped. And Moab was subdued on that day under the hand of Israel, and the land rested 80 years. Now, a couple of things you need to know about this story. Several things are translated. You have different versions, so some of you read some different things. We're going to go through uh, the actual language to see what are some of the things that we miss in the general reading of this of this uh, section of scripture. First of all, in uh, verse 12, it says, once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. So what was the evil? They did again. Now in the version that I read, it said there were some sculptured stones. Other translations where it said sculptured stones, what did you read? Quarries, what else? Idols, 
stone images. Okay, so sculpture stones, stone images, idols, or quarry. Out of all of those options, the majority of commentators all come back to these were idols. These were idols. Um, where they are placed leads many to argue in the theological community whether these were stones that were placed by Moab in uh, the area to kind of mark a boundary, a border. The Babylonians had done that before, and they would, they would place these God's uh, statues right at the border to protect their kingdom of Babylon. And so some, not the majority, but some theologians say possibly this is what it is. I don't think it is, and the vast majority of theologians don't think it is. They think the challenge is, just like you've read in the first three chapters already of Judges, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. And what was the evil that we talked about last week? They worshiped other gods, the Baals and the Asherahs. Now, some theologians, a very few, say, well, perhaps these are the stones that after they crossed the Jordan River and defeated Jericho, which here, many of you, it's called the City of Palms, um, perhaps those are the stones that are erected there to remind the people that God delivered them into the promised land, that last gateway into the promised land. Perhaps these are those stones. Uh, most theologians say no, because it's a different word. And the word that's used there for these sculpted stones is used all other places in the Old Testament to refer to idols of pagan gods. So the chances are that there's this area right there, kind of uh, north-northwest of Jericho, where all of this took place. The assassination took place. And there's kind of this area where there's a lot of these idols right there. And the people reading this at the time, the writers of, of this information would know where that is. But for us, we're like, ah. The major mode of thought is that the people did evil in the sight of the Lord because they went back to worshiping the gods of the everyday. Remember, God was seen as the God of crisis. You go to him when everything's falling apart and your nation needs help. Why did they cry out after 18 years is they were finally done and they needed a solution for the entire nation. So they cried out to Yahweh. Second thing, King Eglon. You need to understand as the people read this, they would kind of laugh because this is a humorous part because Eglon, the name of the king is a diminutive form of Egol, which means bull or calf but also recalls the term egol, which means round or rotund. So his name was King Fat Bull <laughs> or King Fatted Calf. So many of the Israelites reading this would, would be laughing. Oh, we're going we're gonna to get King Fatted Calf. Also, you need to understand Moab. Who are these people, Moab, that are their enemies? You realize these are actually relatives of the Israelites. Where do they come from? It's all the way back. The relatives of the Israelites, they were uh, descended from Abraham's nephew, Lot. And how did they descend from Lot? Well, you don't have to read far into his story to realizing right after Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, his daughters are with him in a cave and discussing the fact that their family lineage is all going to die now. 
And the daughters come up with a great plan. Moab was a child, a son, that came from that relationship. So, they're enemies, but they're related. Isn't it true that some of your greatest enemies are not people who are just people in your life? Some of your greatest enemies are related. <laughs> I had no idea I was going to get amen for that. That's awesome. Where's the love it cards? Yes. Now, the reason why they got a big amen is because it's personal. When the pain is related to you, it's personal. It's, it's personal. They know. They know your buttons. They know how to get you, and they know things you wish they didn't because they, they use that. They weaponize that information against you. It's personal. Moab and Israel, that war is personal. Ehud, our hero, our spy, our our agent that comes in and does something that we'd all be shaking. I, I, I couldn't do this. This is just, I mean, this is super spy stuff. Ehud, his name consists of two elements, A and Hud, which together denote basically a question. Where is the splendor, majesty? Is his name. Where's the splendor, majesty? It, it recalls to us another name that, that we find elsewhere in scripture, like Ichabod, which means where's the glory in 1 Samuel 4.21. These names reflect the despondency of the time. There's just no glory. There's no majesty. It's a mess. So he's named, we're a mess, majesty. Where is the splendor? It says he's a left-handed Benjaminite. Bad dude. He's a bad dude. Thank you, Jack, for using my vernacular. But even more than being a bad dude, the name Benjaminite means right-handed. He's a left-handed right-hander. He's from the tribe that the name means right-handed, and he's a, left, he's a lefty. Many people during that time, in fact, many of you went to school at a time when the teacher would take the pencil out of your left hand and replace it into the right hand. Anybody here have that experience? I did. Yes. And so for some time, you were kind of ambidextrous there, weren't you? You could write with your left or your right hand. And they both looked like chicken scratch. It was all right. They both looked the same. In, in the time of, of this story, it was thought of as a physical defect to be left-handed. Now, there's history that shows that there's a group of Benjaminites later on that tried to become ambidextrous by tying their right hand behind them and using their left hand more in the hopes that they, beco they become ambidextrous. But most of the commentators say that's not the case here for Ehud. He was not trying to become ambidextrous, and the story makes it clear. He's trying to use what everyone else is calling a handicap and use that as his secret weapon. He's left-handed. Now, in this time, uh, if you were to search somebody for weapons, okay, you would search their left side for a sword because you would draw with your right hand across your body and draw your sword. It was just how you couldn't really do it on the same side 
because of the length of the sword. And so when you come into a place like the, the King Eglon's palace here in Jericho, uh, they would look and see, oh, there, he has no sword on his left side. Of course, you wouldn't check the right side. Who would use the right side? And so what he did is he crafted a double-edged sword. Chances are it did not have a hilt. That crossbar did not have it because of what the story says about how far it sank in. Sorry, ladies. Um, And he made it about a cubit, which is when when you make a fist, it's from your first knuckles here to the inside of your elbow. So it was about that long, maybe 14 inches, 18 at the longest, if he was a really tall guy. And so he made it about that long, and he strapped it inside his robe on his right side. Nobody would look there. It's just an unthought-of place. And he uses this for his advantage. So when the Israelites cry out after 18 years of pain, God responds by raising up only one of them, Ehud, a left paw in a world of righties. God seems to raise up a top secret spy here. Nobody seems to know Ehud's plans. No one is there to back him up, to be his wingman, to help him in or out. He's all alone. What does that say about God that he would raise up only one man instead of raising up all the men of Israel? And does he still work that way today? David, back here, has both question and comment. A questionable comment? Is that what you're trying to say? I'm really struggling with this. Um, We've got the statement that um, Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. We have that conclusory statement, Mm -hmm. but I'm struggling with the evidence. We've got a deceptive person who sneaks in and assassinates, murders another person. Yeah. Um, so they put the gloss on it. Well, yeah, obviously, uh, God's on our side in our war, so God sent him. I mean, you know, God's on the right side all the time, and so there's this conclusory statement, but yet we've got this deceptive person who uh, lies mm-hmm. and gets close, and then he murders somebody. Um, and I'm thinking, well, geez, you know, what's the modern application here? Why is this story in the book? In Verdi's opera, Rigoletto, Rigoletto is a harlequin, a court jester. It is his job to ridicule people, to mock people, to get laughs Mm -hmm. uh, at their expense, to slander people. Rigoletto's greatest treasure is his daughter, and he believes that her honor has been uh, tarnished, and so he feels that he has to get an assassin to restore his daughter's honor um, Mm -hmm. and take care of business. And the assassin, his tool is a dagger. And he's talking to the assassin, and he says, you and I, we are the same. You have your dagger, I have my tongue. Mm. Ehud thinks he has license from God to murder a man who is ruling, a foreigner who is ruling over his nation. How many times do we think that we have license to assassinate our leaders? Yeah, yeah. In, in cowardly ways. Yeah, yeah. In the way, in deceptive ways and mm-hmm. without, you know, behind their backs and things. Yeah. I, that's, I'm really struggling. I guess the question that I have is, 
was this really ordained by God? Is this what God wants somebody, wanted Ehud to do? Did he want him to murder this man? Yeah. Thank you, David. That, that is the biggest thing. I'm glad you're wrestling with this because I want all of us to wrestle with this because all of the commentators get to a point, and I, I started chuckling as I was gathering my notes together this past week because you could tell what was going on in the minds of the commentators saying, uh, this is going to give a lot of the crazy people license to do some really despicable things. And so they went into long detail about looking at the whole of Scripture, about saying, look, uh, we need to be careful about how we interpret this and, ap- uh, and, and use this as an application in our current context. Um, and many of them were trying to do leaps and bounds and trying to help you understand there in this story unfortunately, does not go detail by detail about God's instruction and God's interaction throughout the process of moving King Eglon out of the way. And it makes a lot of us very uncomfortable because it seems like God raised him up, but the idea came from Ehud. And so with that, we have to be really, really careful. Remember, you cannot build a theology based on one section of Scripture. You always have to take the entirety of Scripture and say, what does the Bible say about this topic? And then you get a balanced point of view. Otherwise, you can get a really imbalanced point of view, especially in the areas where the Bible is silent. And in this case, that's one of the greatest issues. Is it silent about God's instruction throughout this? Was this Ehud's plan, but God's raising up him to say, we'll do something. And that's a huge thing that people are, are wrestling with. Yes, Sharon. I had the privilege of reading a commentary by Alden Thompson. Yes. Uh, just before we got into this, and I would recommend that anybody who could, has access to his book, Who's Afraid of the Old Testament God, yeah. or the way he's quoted in the book, Servant God, mm-hmm. would do that because it's, it's wonderful the way he explains how God somehow adapts himself to the rules of the understanding yes. of the current culture. Yeah, exactly. Alden's incredible. I love his stuff. Doesn't, doesn't verse 2 say that God did this to teach Israel about war? You know, it's interesting because he comes back to this a couple of times. Now, as, as Seventh-day Adventist, uh, within our fundamental beliefs, how do we teach the development of Scripture happened? Did God breathe word for word into the author according to our fundamental belief. No, Bible was written by inspiring individuals with thought. And the person in their ability to grasp the thought put it into their own words. Now, I don't, I, I don't want you to misunderstand this because this here is a very touchy topic Because many people will look at this and say, I can't believe in Scripture. That's not true. What I have to say is this. We're doing our best in interpreting Scripture today. But I guarantee 10, 20 years from now, if the Lord doesn't return, we're going to look back and say, you know, that was the best we had at the time. I've had a great time going back to the 1984 recordings of Graham Maxwell, of which this is a continuation of his legacy here truly trying to explore the character of God. And as I've listened back to 20 hours of conversation in 1984, I chuckle every now and then because I realized at the moment with all the information that they had and the cultural influence of their day, they could come to this level of understanding. And I know that 20, 
some odd years from now, will listen back to these recordings and go, boy, that was a nice try. But it seems like we have a little bit more info today. So ultimately, that's why I say you can't just base it on one section of Scripture. You have to look at the whole of Scripture because there are times in our life that if you were to ask me about God, I'll tell you one thing. But 25 years ago when I started pastoring, if you would have asked me, I would have given you a different answer just simply because my experience and my exposure to different bits of information. Harvey. When the people walked with God, God walked with them. Yes. And their strength was not limited to their strength. It included God's strength. When they went their own way, they no longer had God's strength. Yeah. And so Moab easily outdid them. And so they, lacking God's strength, were no match for Moab. Yeah. And so, in a sense, God gave to. God simply stopped strengthening Israel mm -hmm. to do what was wrong. Yeah. There's, there's several things to support that, Harvey, in the text. Um, the verbiage that's used uh, for the actual soldiers of Moab uh, especially when it talks about them closing off the um, narrow fords of the Jordan River. Uh, when it talks about the men, it uses a, a term that's very much related to uh, the name of Eglon, but it basically means well-fed, okay? But well-fed in that day meant you were strong, okay? So these are well-fed, strong men, and the Israelites were weak and underfed. It took God truly inspiring this group of people to throw off the enemy. It's also interesting to see where this took place, where the, where the King Eglon set up his headquarters was at the last and final battle before the Israelites came into the promised land. It's right there in Jericho, the place, the reminder that God can do everything and can move all of your enemies out of your way. If all you do is shout and praise him, God will bring the walls down. It's in that place that they gave up their faith. And God needs them to gain their faith again by regaining the territory, the very place. Some of us have to go back and remember the things that have happened in our life that led us to the strengthening moments of our faith. These are the cornerstone stories that you can only... You can only tell the story by filling in the blanks with the name of God because there's no other way it could have happened. And God needs them to reclaim that space. Now, we don't have time to go through uh, the rest of it, but I encourage you to go through these questions uh, in your own study. But I want us to look at verse 28 because in verse 28, Ehud says, Follow me, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. So they followed him, and the Israelites took control of the shallow crossings of the Jordan River across from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. So after assassinating the king of Moab, Ehud calls the men to arms. How is this different from how God typically works? How is this the same? And does God prefer to work with individuals or with groups? That's a question I want to leave you with. This is your lunch conversation. As you look at this instant, instead of God raising up an entire army, he looks at one who says, I'm passionate enough to do something different. And ultimately, as we see what God is doing here in this part of the story, God is saying, I need someone who will do something different. 
As much as we look at it today and see this as as brutal, you need to understand we've glossed over a lot of the Bible in our era because that's violence and we want to minimize violence. But this is a very brutal, barbaric time in the world's history. And this is how things were done. But God rises up an individual who says, I'll do something, even if I'm doing it on my own. Historians look at this and see that Ehud is protecting all the people with him. The reason why he doesn't assassinate the king when they're giving this tribute to the king is he's trying to protect everyone around him in case he fails. And the reason why he comes back later is because he's, he's got the, the trust of, of the king. And also he comes back later because he wants everyone else to get out of the way because he doesn't want anyone else to get hurt if his plan should fail. This shows you that Ehud knew it was his plan. God's passion, but Ehud's plan. And I want us to wrestle with this this week as we look at how does God work? What has God placed on your heart to rise up? Hopefully not to assassinate anybody, but (laughs) has he risen uh, up you in your place, in your time, in your family, in your workplace, in your town, your community to say, you know what? We got to do things differently because we've given up too much territory. And it seems like the greatest concern on God's heart here is the people had given up their territory, even given up the very place that marked God's greatest victory as they were walking into the promised land. Are there places in your life that you've lost that territory? Does God need you to come in and clean up that space to make sure God has full territory in your life and allows your influence, even if you're all alone? It's not always gonna be a group effort. But just on your own, can God use you where you are to reclaim the territory that you used to have, but you've lost? I think that's a great thing for us to ponder this week. That is a great thing to ponder. And I really hope that you spend some time between you and God this week, just in prayer, asking him, how can I make sure that God is just absolutely involved in everything within my territory? Now you want to come back for our next episode because we are going to go through the one, the only, the very special judge, Deborah, the only female judge listed in this book, but definitely not the only female leader that God raised up for a very special time. I also want to encourage any of you who are planning to make a trip out to us and you want to attend the Bible Lab for the very first time. Please take note of what the very kind gentleman is about to say because we want you to write to us because you will have to have reserved seats. We are standing room only and we want your experience to be the absolutely best because you've made the effort to come be with us. We want to show the effort of loving kindness and just accepting you into our community as a VIP member for that day. And so please make sure that you email us and let us know you're coming and we will save you as many seats as you need. Thank you so much and I can't wait to join you again. God bless you in your journey to discover the character of God. Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you're planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at thebiblelab.com. Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.